As we continue our journey through the book of Luke, I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 6. If you don't have your Bibles this morning, we have pew Bibles as well. There's black Bibles in front of you. We were starting to run into an issue where they were disappearing. Good problem to have. And so earlier this morning, some of our students uh, volunteered by putting some more in the seats in front of you. Um, And uh, Luke 6 is on page 809 in, in those Bibles. Last week, as Zeb closed, he shared the quote of the reformers, Philip Melanchthon and his good friend, Martin Luther, right, where Melanchthon said to Martin Luther, do you remember this? Martin, today we shall discuss the governance of the universe, to which Luton is said to have responded, nope, this day you and I will go fishing and leave the governance of the universe to God. And so last week, um, that's what I did. I went fishing. Um, Matthew, the high school boys, and I went went out near Somerset, and it was such a joy. While we did not discuss the governance of the universe, we did discuss quite a few other things um, over the course of that weekend, um, one of which was uh, um, how much shorter Presbyterian church services tend, or uh, sermons tend to be. Um, which culminated in one student say, I should take one of those like pre-workout drinks before, before church. I'm not sure that's the, the right way forward. Well, nonetheless, um, I have a picture of our um, fishing experience this, from this past weekend. Maybe we don't. Oh, there we are. So while, while not everyone is here in the picture, uh, you can see some of us. And every time I go to a thrift store, yes, I do look for waiters and most of them had holes in them. And so you can see me on the far left there in cheap man's waiters. Um, if you know, you know. But with that warning, bad joke coming, let's wait into the text. <laughs> I, I, there's a moan over here. Thank you. <laughs> well, we're going to pick up in verse 11, which we read last week. So this is Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Would you read with me? But they, the religious leaders, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. 
Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Let's pray together. Lord, as we dive into your word, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you will open up our eyes, you'll open up our hearts, the truths herein, and how we ought to live in light of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Today, we are going to be talking about the establishment, if you will, of the anti-establishment. Here's what I mean. We're going to be talking about the who, the what, and the how of God's kingdom. So if you remember back last week, on two different occasions with the Sabbath, we saw how the religious leaders sought that, they, they were filled with fury and sought how they might trip up this Jesus character, subvert his influence, do anything they could to stop him, even to kill him. And while the, the hoity-toity, if you will, of the time, go over to their places of power to discuss one with another what they can do to Jesus, we see here that Jesus also holds a discussion. But he holds a discussion not with the other leaders. Who does he hold the discussion with? Where does he hold the discussion? Verse 12 tells us, in the days, these days, the days after the religious leaders are talking among themselves, Jesus goes out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer. See, Jesus gets alone with God, we see. And Luke thematically placing it here and doing so on purpose. Oops, down because I can't see half of you. On purpose places it here because Jesus, we're about to see, is right, it's, it's right before he's about to make a whole bunch of big decisions. He's about to pick the 12 people who he's going to spend so much of his time with. And he knew the weight of that decision. And still, Jesus, being totally God, also seeks time with God the Father, to seek God the Father's will in the choice that he has before him. And he didn't just pray. He doesn't just go to the mountain to pray. What does it say? He continued all night in prayer. A lot of us might, you know, like, we have a concept of that, but we have a far more clear concept, right? All-nighters, anyone? You pull an all-nighter before? All right, um, students, keep your hands up so I know who to, like, see. No, just kidding. <laughs> all-nighters. Parents, you've probably pulled an all-nighter around Christmas Eve when there's so much to do, there's so much thought that needs to happen. I just, I have to go all night long. We have this concept of all-nighters, and Jesus pulls... Not so much an all-nighter, if you will, but a, well, I don't know if this lands or not, but a, a prayer-nighter. All night, he continues in prayer on the verge of such a big decision. He's so focused here on the will of his Father. He's like, Lord, I have to spend all night in prayer because this is a huge decision. 
which when I read this again this past Monday, I was just like hit with a bunch of bricks. Like the application, here we are in the, the first verse, if you will. The application is just there for us, isn't it? Like, Do I legitimately pray like this, particularly right before big decisions? Do I move here or do I stay out of town? Do I pursue this relationship? Do I end this relationship? Do I, you name it, right? Do we have children? Do we not have children? Do I pursue this job? Do I, do I quit my job? We all have big decisions at various points in our lives. And do I persevere to the same extent that we see Jesus here in one of these moments? Here's um, Martin Luther yet again is said to have said, when asked about what he's going to do the very next day, is said to have said this, work, work, from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. How many of us, me included, would say, you know, when I have to work, 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 the first thing to go is prayer. I'm guilty. It's just, it's our human nature and it's our human tendency. Now, I didn't pull any prayer nighters this week. The text is not teaching that if you stay up all night long to pray, God will answer the prayer exactly how you want it. No, no, no. That's not what it's saying. That's far from the truth. But what it is saying is that Jesus brought this significant thing before his father's feet. It's a matter of effort. It's a matter of mind space, right? If you're like me, you spend all this time analyzing and thinking through an issue, far more than I do praying about an issue. And Jesus brings it all, putting aside worry, right, and brings it to the Lord. Um, another element that came to mind as I was working through this text is, is how many of us wake up at 3.45 in the morning. This I can't raise my hand on this one. But how many wake up at 3.45 in the morning because you have a million things on your mind? The weight of life is just pouring over. I have to, or my loved ones, or my children, or this. There's a million things on our mind. So as we think about application, friends, may we, when we wake up at 3.30 in the morning, instead of just perseverating and thinking and thinking and thinking on those issues that I can't really do any, what good can you do on something at 3.30 in the morning? Other than in those moments just to bring them before the Lord. So may we be a 3.30 in the morning Pray in church when we wake up in, in those hours. And so here we see one of the first kingdom principles we're going to explore this morning is that prayer is the key. Prayer connection to the king is the key. And right after Jesus is all nighter in prayer, he turns around and he just starts working right out the gate. Verse 13 says, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. How many disciples did he call? Well, it's a trick question. He calls his disciples and he chooses from among those disciples. So he's calling more than 12. If we look a little later on in verse uh, 17, 18, he says that there's a great crowd of his disciples. So Jesus pulls a whole bunch of his disciples together, and it's kind of like the, uh, maybe it's the most demoralizing dodgeball gym class, like selection for the team, like pick your team. And you say, this one, I'll take you and you. 
And he chooses from them 12, the ones who are going to be closest to him, the ones whom he's going to train, the one in whom he's going to invest his life. Now, um, 12 is a fascinating number. Here we are at springtime, although it doesn't always feel like it. Kennywood fans? Kiddos? Yeah. I, no idea when Kennywood opened. Cedar Point, Idlewild. But if you think about it, I remember being in high school, going to those places and thinking, what's the perfect number where you never have to sit next to a stranger? Some rides have two seats next to each other. Some rides have three. Some rides have four seats. And the least common multiple of them is 12. So if you never want to sit next to an outsider, go to an amusement park with 12 people. And there are some, so, some interesting sociological elements of the number 12, but Jesus doesn't pick 12 primarily because of those elements. Why does he pick 12? How many tribes were there in Israel? God's chosen nation. There were 12. And how many disciples does Jesus call to spend a whole lot of time with him to be the foundation of his kingdom? 12. See, what God's doing here is he's mirroring Old Testament to New Testament. The fact that these 12 disciples are a, a representation and the foundations of the church, something the, the truer, if you will, Israel. The foundation of God's chosen nation and now here, God's, the foundation of God's chosen people. We'll come back to this in a moment, but what title does he give to those 12. What name does he give to them? The word apostle. Now, what's, what is an apostle? Quite literally, it means sent one or sent out ones. Right? So apostle is one who is sent, often with a purpose or a mission or as a thing, maybe an emissary, something like that, which begs the question, are there apostles today with that definition? The answer is yes. And the answer is also no. But how can it be both? And this is really important for us today in 2023. Right? And we're not going to be able to take a, a real deep dive, but in a cursory manner, let's, let's deal with this. Um, and feel free just to jot down this passage, 1 Corinthians 9.1. Paul gives us, gives us a hint. And this is like the lowest level um, definition of apostleship that we see in scripture. And it's, it's this. Paul writes, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? What he's alluding to is an apostle is one who has seen the Lord, seen the risen Christ, one who is born witness to Christ. So we see um, a, a few general definitions of the word apostle. An eyewitness of the risen Christ, one. Two, commissioned by Christ, or in some cases commissioned by other apostles, but commissioned by Jesus nonetheless. Paul was commissioned by Jesus. These 12 apostles that Jesus called to himself, he commissioned them. One publisher writes this, and it's helpful. It says, an apostle is the status of being an envoy of Jesus Christ commissioned directly by him or by other apostles. Normally someone 
who has been taught directly by Jesus and who is invested with the authority to speak on his behalf. You see, in the church, the words of the apostles had such significant weight and such significant clout because they were commissioned directly by Jesus and in some cases by other apostles that they were presumed to have the authority to speak on behalf of God. Here's what we see. Apostleship is an actual office. So apostleship is an office. It's a role. And there's a difference between, we have it up here on the screen, between apostle with a capital A and apostle with a lowercase a. So what do we mean by that? Apostleship, lowercase a. You can be one. Think of a missionary, one who's sent out to another land with the message of Christ in a place where there is no access to the gospel. Would we say that that person is sent out? Well, absolutely. They're sent out with an apostolic mission. They're sent out um, with that mindset to carry the light of Christ. And yet, we would be lying if we would say they are an apostle. Now, we are, are used to this concept of saying, yes, the general is true, can be true for many, but the particular is not true for all of us. So, uh, an example, we live in the heart of Steeler Nation, right? How many would say you're part of Steeler Nation? Here's. Either you're not participating or I'm just like off to, out to lunch. <laughs> but we would be crazy to say, yes, I am a Steeler. You see the difference between being a part of something and, like, I'm not a football player. In, this, in a similar manner, um, is true, if you will, of Apostle capital A and lowercase a. And this is why it's important to us nowadays. There are some in, the, in Christian circles who claim that the title, even the office of Apostle capital A, continues, and therefore they are presumed to speak on behalf of God himself. But when we read our Bibles carefully, we read that this here is the word of God that we need nowadays, we see that, no, the, the office of apostle is no longer the case. So while the title is over, the title, the, apostle, the office of apostle is no longer around, we see that there can still be a descriptive element, if you will. Um, both of these ideas are, are mirrored so beautifully in what Daniel read for us earlier in Revelation 21. The idea that the 12 apostles can correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel and that the office no longer exists. Listen to Revelation 21. This is 12 to 14. Describing the new Jerusalem. Translation, describing heaven. The city, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the names of the, on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Make sense? Meant to mirror and the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 
And, and with this, let's just, in a, in a brief manner, mention Ephesians 2. This is worth it as we shift our attention now. Ephesians 2.19, listen to this. So then, Paul writes, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And we see that the apostles are the foundation of the church. And Jesus, um, or Luke, tells us the names of the, of the 12 people that Jesus picked. So who are these guys who are important enough to have their names inscribed on the foundations of the New Jerusalem? He uh, first mentions Simon, Simon Peter, who before this has always been called Simon, and after this he's always going to be called Peter. Same guy. Peter, what was Peter's profession? Andrew, whose profession was? Yeah, you're going to get the idea, right? We're just going to have a whole lot of fishermen. I'm, I'm trying to justify my time from last week. <laughs> but fishermen stink. <laughs> One of, uh, I, forget what day, I think it was on Wednesday, um, I had a student in my car, and he was like, this car still smells like worms. Thanks. <laughs> because fishermen stink, right? What, normal, ordinary people. These guys, by and large, are ordinary and normal and not the people you and I would have chosen to be the foundation of anything that actually lasts. But they're the ones that Jesus chose. Side note, Jesus chose them. They didn't choose Jesus he chose them. And it wasn't because of anything in and of themselves that they could speak eloquently, quite the opposite. But he takes those ones, those absolutely ordinary people, and he transforms them. And he turns them around. And at some point in time, we see that they end up turning the world upside down as we read in Acts. With absolutely ordinary people I hope, friends, that that is an encouragement to you. I know it is to me that he uses and transforms. That's the key. Absolutely ordinary people to fulfill his purposes. That's a mark of the kingdom. Ordinary people. There's another that we see here in the list. Some of you might be familiar with it. We see that Matthew is a tax collector. His boss is the occupying government. We also read that Simon the Zealot, a zealot is essentially one who's trying to undermine the government. So we have one who's trying to undermine the government that Jesus chooses, and we have one who works for the government that Jesus chooses. Where in the world should those two guys be talking together? If anything, they should like, they should be doing one of these out, out of the corner eyes. I don't trust you. Here's the point here. When, when we're looking at the kingdom of Christ, he brings together people who have absolutely no business associating with each other. In some cases, 
quite the extreme. Situations or people who are absolutely opposed to each other, he even brings them together. Unity. A mark of his kingdom is unity. We, we've mentioned Steeler fans, and none of you really opened, raised your hands, so I'm, I'm not going to ask for the single Bronco fan to raise his hand. <clears throat> um, <laughs> um, but, but we see this in other situations, right? Not just sports teams, but how many have been to a church in another culture where you're just like sitting there or worshiping there, and you don't understand a lick of it? You look totally different. You sound totally different, and their music is probably 45 times louder than I can even bear. And still there's a, a beauty and there's a sense of unity. With these people, I don't look like, I don't sound like. We have almost no common bond. But in Christ, the two of us who don't have anything, any business to be together, what? Are one. We see this kingdom principle here, even in the 12 that Jesus chooses which um, it's no wonder that Jesus later says, by this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. After this, we read in verse 17 that Jesus comes down and he meets them on their own level. I was going to come down here, but I'm not going to kick the flowers or, or stumble down the stairs. Let's just read this again with a few passing Elements. This is Luke 6, 17. And he, Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. How many disciples? A great crowd. And a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So, we have some Israelites, we probably have some Gentiles mixed in there, who came to hear him. Now this is interesting here. Came to hear him. A number of weeks ago, we heard how Jesus has, teaches with authority. Luke's kind of like summarizing some things here for us. A teaching with authority. They came to hear him. Verse 18, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Authority over spirits, authority over souls. Sound familiar? We worked our way through that. In 19, and I don't even have a category to understand this. Verse 19, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Power is coming out from him and is healing all of them. I don't know, at least it's rare and far far between, where Jesus actually heals everyone in a crowd. And here, Luke is particular to take note that Jesus healed them. He healed them all. Why? That's a fascinating detail. I don't know for sure. And it just makes you wonder, was the Lord doing something special this day and setting up the 12 close apostles and setting up a new type of thinking a new kingdom in a far more public way. Was Jesus, was God trying to like put a punctuation point that what's going on here today is particularly important. And on this level ground, you know, a, a place of access to the king of the kingdom, Jesus comes down on their plane and has access to them. You typically don't get access to the king. And in this place of humility, 
he begins to teach. Now, quick passing comment over the, the next, what is it? The rest of this chapter. Um, this has been called the Sermon on the Plain, which sounds a whole lot like the Sermon on the Mount. Now, a lot of folks have said, well, they're the same sermon. Well, they can't be the same sermon, but they have to be the same sermon, or it's just an amalgamation of a whole bunch of different things. Well, guess what? As interesting as that can or may not be for some, it doesn't matter because nonetheless, whose words are these? Jesus' words. And so whether they're the same sermon or not, I don't really care today because they are the words of our Lord. So let's turn to them. And as we turn to them, let's just picture, Jesus is speaking to whom? a great crowd of his disciples, and also a great multitude. So this is a mixed group. And yet, among this mixed group, to whom does Jesus address his words? Verse 20 says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Is he speaking to the crowd, to the outsiders, or is he speaking to his disciples? He is absolutely speaking to his disciples. Why is this important? It's important because sometimes people read the Beatitudes, what we are about to work through, and they say, well, in order to enter the kingdom, you must be poor. In order to enter the kingdom, you must be hungry. You must cry. No. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to people who are already his, who are already in the kingdom. So poverty is not the means to blessing. Hunger is not the means to blessing. Weeping is not the means to blessing. What's the means of blessing? From where does the blessing come? Because you belong to Jesus. That's the key. That's the key. Because when we belong to Jesus, that's where the blessedness comes from. So with that, let's work through it. Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. See, the blessedness is not in the poverty. But it is in the possession of of the kingdom of God. Now the word poor in this case um, can have two meanings. While there is absolutely a material element here, there is a material um, meaning of the word poor here. And it's not only and it's not inherently discussing material poverty, although that's part of it. There's also another case of, po of poverty that he's talking about here. And we can get our, our clue from that from Matthew 5.33. Excuse me, Matthew 5, verse 3, where Jesus expounds, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble the blessedness of possessing nothing. The one where I'm just going to come down on the same, Jesus modeled it, came down on the same level. Humility, access. 
I don't own it in and of myself. So we see that. The poor, there's a spiritual element, and there's also a material element there. And now um, Jesus turns in these next two phrases, and he does address the material in a very real way. He says, blessed are you, we have it up here on the screen, who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. When are you hungry? When are you weeping? Now, both of them. Another way to ask it. Um, okay, so right now I'm hungry. Right now I'm weeping, but I'm going to be satisfied. I'm no longer going to mourn. When is that going to happen? And how is that going to happen? Well, um, I'm going to have to push pause on that. We'll circle back to that as we wrap things up here in a, in a few moments. But remember that question. When will the tears disappear? When will I no longer weep? When will my hunger be satisfied, okay? We'll, we'll circle back to that because the reason being, Jesus answers it in verse 23. So we'll, we'll circle back to that in a moment, um, but for the time being, let's go to verse 22. It gets even more extreme. Jesus goes on to move on from the hunger and the weeping now, and he says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spread Burn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. There's a prophetic element here, isn't there? Jesus looks at his disciples, and he knows what's going to happen to them after he ascends, doesn't he? he? He knows that servant is not greater than the master. He knows that they will be hated and excluded and spurned and reviled because they're just innate jerks. No but because of the Son of Man, because they follow Christ. And that's, that's quite literally what happened, isn't it? I think about um, church tradition, and it talks about the deaths of Jesus' disciples, how Peter was crucified upside down, how Bartholomew, this one gets me, was flayed alive. And in those moments, I just, I wonder, what words of Jesus were going through their brain? At some point, I just wonder, blessed are you when others hate, revile, spurn your name as evil, or exclude you? For their own sake, no. But for the sake of the Son of Man. Jesus knew that his disciples would be hated, so he promises them, you will be blessed. Blessed are you when these things happen. Translation, fortunate you are when these things happen. You ought to be happy and joyful. Your situation is good when those things happen. And he goes on in verse 23, not only blessed, but he gives an imperative here. What's he saying in verse 23? Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Like a little toddler leaps on Christmas morning. Leap for joy. How do you do that? How do you rejoice when people are spurning your name as evil? Well, we actually have 
The scripture tells us. We have an account of this. This is Acts 5. Let me read this to you. Acts 5.40. Just listen to these words. It's talking about the apostles specifically. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. They were rejoicing that they were worthy. That's not normal. When you get beat, you don't rejoice and say, yes. This isn't human in any manner, is it? This, um, I, I've mentioned this book before, and if uh, these things, th- it didn't only happen in those days, it happens now again. My dad's been reading it recently, so I've been thinking about it. The Insanity of God talks about believers all around the world whose names are spurned over the past 30 years. Um, here's a, a, a very quick example. Talking about the church in China where they count um, prison time as seminary degrees, quite literally. Um, so... I guess it's technically free to go to seminary if you're in China, although it's far less comfortable, I guess. Um, But the secret police harass believers and say, we're going to take all your property. If you do that, you will need to talk to Jesus because I gave this property to him. To which the police will respond, but when we take your property, you and your family will have nowhere to live. Then we'll be free to trust God for shelter and our daily bread. Well, if you keep that up, we'll beat you. Well, then we'll be free to trust Jesus for healing. Then we'll put you in prison. Then we'll be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the captives to set them free. We'll be free to plant churches in prison. If you do that, then we'll kill you. Then we'll be free to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. It's not normal. This kingdom's a little backwards than how you and I tend to process things, isn't it? Um, The question is, are my affections for Christ? This is why it's so backwards. This is why it doesn't make sense. When your affections for Christ outweigh your physical or your whatever else, your mental, your emotional, your social difficulties... The only thing that can overweigh them is your affection for Christ. And we saw that there by the example of the Chinese church, didn't we? Not because they're a jerk, but just because of the sake of Christ. We hear stories like this of folks all across the world, believers all across the world. If you ever want to hear more about them, I have some resources in my office you can, you can grab, you can keep. Just, just let me know or, or grab them off the table up there. But just this, here's another example closer to home. Just this past week, I was on the phone with, with a believer who was in the middle of a business meeting. And the, the core of that meeting was thing, were things that were absolutely contrary to Scripture and the way God designed things. 
And, and this person just felt the conviction from literally being there. And um, at a break time, when would not have been like, well, I'm leaving this. No. But quietly slipped out of the meeting, despite potential loss of business, despite potential rejection, despite being like, well, oh, you're one of the crazies. But for the sake of the gospel, because of deep convictions, up and left. Blessed are you when others spurn your name as evil on account of Jesus. Uh, we were chatting today in Sunday school with the, with the students about this type of thing. Um, like how if I choose, students' perspective, if I choose not to date, if I choose not to sleep around with people, sometimes your kids get made fun of. And guess what? That's a good thing. Whenever I stand here on the word, that's a good thing. If I lose a business deal because I was standing by the truth of the Bible, guess what? That's a good thing, Jesus tells us. And it's not only a good thing. We're not only blessed when those things happen, but it's so much more than that. Jesus gives us an imperative. He gives us a command. Not only are you blessed, but he says what? Rejoice and leap for joy. Rejoice in that day, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So as we begin to, to wrap up and think about some application, this, uh, this is one other book that's been super fascinating to me. And when I first opened it, I read the preface. I never used to read the preface. Always read the preface. This is, I, I stopped on this preface. Christian reader, it's called The Divine Comforts. There are two things which I've always looked upon as difficult. The one is to make the wicked sad. The other is to make the godly joyful. Dejection in the godly arises from a double spring, either because their, catch this, inward comforts are darkened or their outward comforts are disturbed. So as we think about our own lives, I think that's helpful for us. Are my outward comforts disturbed? Well, guess what? Jesus tells you to rejoice, to leap for joy when your outward comforts are disturbed. And perhaps the worse is, are my inward comforts darkened? That's a worse situation, isn't it? But Jesus here gives us the fix for that, and it's this. One, he says, you are not alone. He's speaking to all his disciples. The disciples have gone before you. The apostles have gone before you. He's, he tells his disciples, well, whenever they spurn you as evil, guess what? They did so to the prophets, so get over it. You're not alone. Well, our brothers and sisters across this globe are going through it. You're not alone. So don't let your inward comforts be darkened. And two, Jesus says, your reward is great in heaven. So back to our previous question. When will those who mourn no longer weep? When will those who are hungry be satisfied? Well, Jesus answers it right here. Your reward is great in heaven. Those who trust in Jesus will be satisfied in heaven with a 
the great reward when you look to your Savior face to face. That's the reward. When you're spurned and hated because of our love for following the Son of Man, He commands us to rejoice. Have we had that opportunity recently to rejoice on account of Him? So this morning we saw that Jesus is beginning to organize, if you will, build the organization, although there wasn't a whole lot of organization among the 12, but in a, mo- in a more systematic way. He builds it with prayer. He builds it with 12 ordinary guys. He builds it with the unity of people that most people would never expect. He builds it with this kind of upside-downness of the kingdom. Rejoice when you're spurned, when you're hated, when you are excluded. Oh, and worldly difficulties are actually blessings because our affections are to be won by one who is far greater. That's why we can rejoice. So what does that reward look like? Again, Daniel read it. Just listen, church. When shall you be satisfied? When shall those who trust Jesus be tears be wiped away. Your reward is great in heaven. This is it. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The weeping will be no more. The hungry will be satisfied, and the price we pay will be absolutely worth it. Not because there's a lack of crying, but because the dwelling place of God is with us. And the wall of that city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. So as I, uh, Ruthann, if, if you would come on up as, as we close, I can't think of a, a better way for us to think about the question, are our affections won by the living Christ, where this, we can say we're blessed and rejoice for those types of things, than to sing a song, he leadeth me, O blessed thought. Sometimes mid-scenes of deepest gloom, sometimes where Eden's flowers bloom, but tis God's hand still that leadeth me. Would you stand and sing?